0: Authors often hyperbolize social and political problems of their time for reads and clicks and notoriety. This is one of those rare times when the panic is justified. Welcome to Coffeehouse. American Marxism by Mark Levin was published in 2021, and it describes the now complete infiltration of Marxist ideology into virtually, if not every, major institution in the United States and what must be done about it. Now, as always, we will go through the contents of the book, then we'll have an analysis where we talk about the virtues and vices of the work, and then we will wrap it all up into a big-picture discussion where we try to understand where it fits in a broader picture of the world. So, if you would, please subscribe and check out some of my earlier episodes, and we will move on to the content. It's here. The country is full of useful idiots. Tyranny has the greatest opportunity in American history. There are Marxist mobs roaming the streets like Antifa, and they follow very particular ideas with specific lineages. Ideas like the myth of the perfectibility of man, and obedience being the highest virtue. The author traces some of these ideas back to early thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who talked about natural versus political inequality, and saw a progress of inequality in the history of governing systems, so it happens in stages for Rousseau. The first stage is where you establish law and property. The second stage is the establishment of a magistracy. The third stage is the transition from legitimate power to arbitrary power until there's a new revolution. For Hegel, there was a hard emphasis on the state and people finding an activation of their self through the state, and there being some kind of a universal whole, and you could only actualize freedom through the state. And then Marx, of course had the ideas of the proletariat slaves versus the bourgeoisie capitalists, and that the revolution cannot be effected in the beginning except by despotic inroads. Now the point here is that there's a through line for these ideas of tyranny, of despotism. I am introduced, thankfully, at this point to a book called The True Believer by Hoffer, and the author recounts some of the ideas that are vital to an understanding of the types of people who join these mass mobs, and advocate these kinds of revolutionary ideas, the Marxist flavor. So the True Believer talks about how these people, by deprecating the present, make themselves feel better. And this is, of course, something that you see ubiquitously amongst the people who have subscribed to this particular movement, and strains of this Marxist, neo-Marxist kind of movement, is a deprecation of the present. They have to say that everything about the present is absolutely horrendous. Another idea is that it never ends. There's no end to the revolution. You never actually arrive anywhere. That's by design. Again, the infinite perfectibility of human nature, that people can be, that everybody, 100% of people, can be perfected, that's structurally another way to keep the revolution going forever. It's not something that's understood, these ideas, but something that is believed in. And, of course, the end, the destination, the true destination, is totalitarianism. And Marxism is merely a new faith. So what kind of manifestations have we seen in this country? Hate America, Inc. Marx was one of the ones who specifically talked about how people must reject their own history. And this is translated into denouncing America's past. Of course, we see this all over the place. This is something that is a foundational building block, or should we say wrecking ball, of the new Marxist movements. And it has been spreading like wildfire, and specifically in educational institutions. And that's one of the things that is brought out here, is that the free college idea, it's not out of generosity. It's not to get more educated people out there. It's so that more people will be funneled through these institutions. Free colleges gets more people into these indoctrination systems. And they're beginning at earlier and earlier ages. And in the midst of this, of course, they have a war on academic freedom and free speech. That is why they have to be undermined at every turn now. Of course, anything that grants rights or gives some kind of freedom is going to threaten control. Most recently, these things have been manifested in kind of a tripartite terror of the free society. Things like threats to pack the court, to eliminate the filibuster, and to nationalize the election system. Things that would prove potentially fatal, any one of them, to the functional democratic system. And one thing that the author talks about is the principle of private property rights being gutted. And this was before what happened most recently. The stay of evictions, the eviction moratorium that was just issued from on high. It's this broad and unapologetic edict where the man himself specifically said, I don't know that this is actually legal, but I'm going to do it anyway. But the moratorium on evictions is effectively the government appropriating all the rental property in the country saying that you can't do what you want to do with your property, whether you paid for it or not, that we have control by virtue of our power to be able to do this sort of a thing. So it was prescient for the author to have concerns over this. And then, of course, the widely expanded welfare state, which, again, is not based on largesse. It's not even noblesse oblige. The point is to get people hooked on things that keep them destitute and for more to be funneled through the federal government. We have the first mention of Herbert Marcuse, and ironically, I was just watching a movie, it was uh, The Insider. Al Pacino, directed by Michael Mann, had Russell Crowe, and it's about a guy who gives testimony to bring down big tobacco before they were admitting that their product was super dangerous. And the journalist who went to a very good school talks about how he, his mentor was Herbert Marcuse but Herbert Marcuse, he was a university professor, he was an anti-war movement member, he was one of the progenitors of critical theory, and he sought to replace American culture. He urged activism and wanted revolution, so he started out, he wanted to be the masses, just a spontaneous collective action by all the masses to overthrow, you know, just losing their chains per the Communist Manifesto. Then he thought it ought to be the intelligentsia, and when that wasn't seeming to work, then he thought it could be a student uprising. But then the Marxist tentacles began reaching deeply into all of society and this idea of oppressor and oppressed, you have to be one of them, made its way into academia, the most potent force for indoctrination. And this other professor, Landis, specifically describes millennialists, who it's apparently some subgroup or macro group of millennials, but describes them as having a passion for justice and knowing good and evil well, believing that they do and that they believe that there are few saints and many sinners and want the last to be first and use this language of the underdog and try to usher in this apocalyptic revolution. But some of the things they stand on are that everything has meaning, everything is a pattern. The smallest incident can have immense importance, and they get to live in this enchanted and exciting world. So it's something bigger than how much a potato costs. There is very deep, important psychology going on here. We talk about Lenin here and Mao and Pol Pot and where their ideas came from when it came to Marxism and ties it directly into education. Lenin came from a prosperous family. He had a law degree. He encountered Marxist ideas in school and his brother was actually executed for revolutionary ideas. Mao was also from a prosperous family and he began reading Marxist literature in the library when he was being educated and he founded, of course, the CCP. Pol Pot studied in Paris, where he came into contact with communist politics. But this is how they encountered these basic ideas, one of which is that capitalism is built on inequality. There's this one thinker specifically who talked about this. The author takes issue with this and talks about how it completely ignores mobility, that people are mobile in between classes in a capitalist system. And asks rhetorically, but maybe not necessarily, not necessarily rhetorically, because this is an excellent question, is where are all the people fleeing capitalist countries for communist ones? And another good question is how to measure economic equality, because it's not a mere means of just comparing two people's bank accounts to figure out this owner versus worker dichotomy and who owns and who works and who should be overthrown and who shouldn't, because many workers own some of their company. Many owners work in their companies. I mean, I own chunks of many different companies. So what does that make me? And, of course, the curious thing is that the most impenetrable class exists in communist countries. It's the class at the top, the vanguard party. But the point is that the education, the goal of education, is to create a generation of revolutionaries. One of the terms used for this generation of activists is praxis. So it's putting these ideas into practice, and they're doing that more and more in these schools, is making them practice these things as opposed to just learn or debate them. And in schools, apparently, it's uh, 9% conservative and 80% solid left. And one in five would describe themselves as Marxist. And that's at least one in five. Many others would describe themselves as socialist, but would adhere to much of Marxist ideology. Then we have a shift here, a big shift into racism, genderism, and Marxism. And this is where we get into CRT and ideas around that. So we have Herbert Marcuse makes a reappearance. And the problem that he had was that he needed to explain why masses didn't rise up. And so there are all these things that flowed from that, so that tolerance was a ploy to get masses to support oppressors. So when you were being tolerant of other people, it was just a means of manipulating so that you would support the oppressors instead of overthrow them. And that there was a natural right to use extra legal means, and that if you used violence in service of his ideas, then it would just be breaking the chain of violence. It wasn't wrong in itself. Then we have CRT, one of the most insidious of these ideas, where it breaks everybody up into oppressors and oppressed that you impede revolution when you adhere to established cultural ideas, so anything from the past, if you adhere to that, then you are impeding the revolution. You have, I put... I use this word as lightly as humanly possible and put some scare quotes around it. Some thinkers, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi, who support these kinds of ideas, and it's just racism top to bottom. Any disparate results are evidence of systemic racism. All whites must admit investment in racism. You cannot hide behind neutral laws, and you must actively support anti-racist policies. As is always appreciated, we get a reference to Thomas Sowell here. Intellectuals in Society, we haven't read this one yet, but we will, of course, we'll read all of Thomas Sowell's books at some by some point. But Sowell breaks it down in various ways, how you can't confuse blame with causation. You cannot assume the cause or the cure. The CRT takes blame to a whole new level, racism responsible for everything. But Sowell points out that the past is beyond our control, just like geography and that the methods used and the ideas implemented are destructive of the very people supposedly oppressed, and very importantly, that dogma seals off the vision of facts. So when you follow a dogma like this, then you are cutting off and obscuring the reality that would actually help you figure out what's going on here. And then there are a bunch of other CRT, again, quote-unquote thinkers, all ones that I think we've heard of before. There's Kimberly Crenshaw, talked about intersectionality, Richard Delgado, Gene Stefanczyk. All talking about how racism is normal, it's not an aberration, it's the normal state of things. And that short of eradicating society, there is no cure. And you have Derek Bell, a Harvard Law professor, and Thomas Sowell apparently said that Bell was not qualified to teach, so I appreciate that. But Bell was critical of civil rights advances, he said there were no neutral laws, and that everything was affected by white-dominant culture. And the whole thing must be wiped clean. If you're critical of any of his ideas that it's evidence of white racism... And victimization and emotional p- appeals and balkanization are all features of his ideas. And rights, you know, all those little rights things like Fauci talked about, I know you like your rights, or I know you like your rights, or however he talks, I don't <laughs> do a Fauci. But those rights are used to uphold white power structures. And then Nicole Hannah Jones with the 1619 Project, apparently, it might have been Gordon Wood. <laughs> It's, it's that guy Gordon Wood from uh, Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> then you'd be in here regurgitating Gordon Wood, <laughs> but apparently he uh, was involved in the sixteen twenty project, was which was a counter to the sixteen nineteen project. But there are a bunch of historians who pushed back against this because the sixteen nineteen project was a conspiracy theory that America was founded specifically to protect the institution of slavery. Of course, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it's a bit of phony scholarship. It was eventually revealed and agreed that it was not actual historical scholarship because historians cite sources and make arguments that are challenged by other historians, but Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project cites no sources at all. The original contains no footnotes or bibliography. It was just an ideological screed that was being used and then promoted by the New York Times. But it certainly wasn't restricted to the New York Times and Nicole Hannah-Jones or these particular quote-unquote thinkers. But Sandia National Laboratories, uh, the government-run institution, it said that emphasis on rationality over emotionality was a white male concept. And then there was that absolutely hilarious infographic from the Smithsonian that said that single work, monotheism, a nuclear family, all these things were aspects of white and there's also a Latcrit movement, a Latin or Latino, Latino-Latina critical theory movement regarding immigration that we haven't heard so much about, but it's, it's there too. Then we get a big shift, and this was one of the most novel aspects of this book, is hearing about this part of critical theory in climate change, climate change fanaticism. It's something I hadn't heard before. But apparently, there are these people that are degrowthers. They specifically protest to go backwards. They are against economic growth. They want to reverse economic progress. They want to set a maximum income and a maximum wealth. They want a living wage for everybody and a 20 hour work week. So what a lot of these types of people and, of course, the less extreme climate change fanatics do is they ignore the success of capitalism, things like billions more people surviving because of it, better life expectancy than a king not very long ago. But the pioneer of the degrowth movement actually studied Marx. Look at that. Ayn Rand and Thomas Sowell specifically challenged the ideas around the the climate change area. It was Sowell who wrote The Tyranny of Visions and talked about how it was the marketing of promises of visions, not the marketing of promises of results or reality or facts or anything like that. The thing that was most concerning is how utterly ignorant the activists were, though they were passionately and violently adhering to these ideas. I think that's the thing that most concerns me about all of this. But there's no climate consensus. Of course, it's something that always bothered me about this whole thing was that the more CO2, the more plants are going to be able to photosynthesize. <laughs> Isn't that why you see such overgrowth around freeways and things? But that's what they do. They take in the CO2 and they create oxygen, then we breathe in the oxygen and release CO2. So there's a symbiotic thing there. So it seemed the more CO2 that is released, the more for plants. Now, there could be some kind of a, a thing where an atmospheric CO2 two is not going to benefit plants and i don't know if if we're breathing it out it wouldn't necessarily be directly atmospheric but <laughs> it's complicated business but the important thing is here that there's this letter from climate scientists that says the general circulation models are unfit for the purposes that they are being used for they need realistic economics models and concern for those harmed by the kinds of policies that would be put into place that would be to benefit the climate at the detriment of the economics but what's what the models are being used for they don't support and that's one of the big issues with it and one general issue is that funds were not available for research that does not comport with the ideology the already established ideology so you don't know what the actual truth is because you can't get those voices out. There's a, a scientist in Australia who said that climate change catastrophism is the greatest fraud that has ever occurred. Big words. There's Patrick J. Michaels who said that also said the models are failing. And there's a researcher at MIT who said that global warming is about politics and not science. And I thought I put it in here, but I didn't see it as I was going through these. But there is a very big difference between what is claimed by scientists, by climate scientists, and what is not. So it's really important to understand there's a difference between it's warming versus not warming. It's warming because of what people do versus it's warming for reasons that are entirely out of their control. It's warming to a degree that will be catastrophic in a short amount of time, or catastrophic just in general, whatever's being created right now is sufficient to cause enough problems that won't be able to be nullified by some kind of a a natural system of equilibrium over time. I mean, all those things have to be asked and have to be understood by the people who are trying to claim this climate catastrophism, and the thing that we know for sure is that of the 99.9% of the people who make all these claims don't have a single clue about any of this stuff. They didn't do the fundamental research for any of this. And they're so passionately convinced that it's obviously emotional and ideological rather than empirical. And the consensus studies that we've seen, I know we talked about it in another book, but when you look into them, the claims actually being made there are not climate catastrophism. They're the ones who say that people likely contribute to climate change, something innocuous like that, where you get a large consensus from people. So anyway, the California blackouts, something that happened recently, And it was based on renewables. Schellenberger, Michael Schellenberger, we read his book, Apocalypse Never, explains that electricity prices rose six times more in California than other places. And they had this huge expansion of renewables, but then they ended up having these massive blackouts, rolling blackouts. And this was even though solar solar costs declined dramatically over the same period of time, they still had this dramatic increase in their electricity prices. And in Texas itself, of course, Texas has a kind of general view about what Texas is like and who runs it. But they have a renewable energy mandate, and they were running on a whole bunch of solar panels and wind turbines. And then when they got a ton of snow and ice for some reason, the wind generation stopped and demand surged at the same time. So the wind power plunged more than 90%. The renewables are not as carbon-dense and not as efficient as the things that are generally used, like natural gas. So these are all things that need to be taken into consideration rather than blindly following an ideology because it's something that you can attach to your personality. Okay, now it goes into propaganda censorship and subversion and how Marx actually was kind of a journalist. He was writing articles for the Tribune. I think he wrote like 500 articles or something like that. But he wrote for an ideology. You could see this early on. And a central tactic was disparaging the successful and vastly oversimplifying. Things amongst his followers. And now, journalists, of course, the way that these newspapers work, we get pseudo events that are made to support an ideology, not just reported upon. Uh, Things like the Russian collusion narrative for years and years. We have journalists just completely abandoning ideas of journalistic standards, like Burns explicitly called for that. Because of Trump, he said that they had to abandon their journalistic standards so they could fight against Trump. Other journalists said that they were now participants in the news, as opposed to reporters of it, and they have to help determine outcomes. One named Rosen said Trump was a special case and the media became a Praetorian guard of the Biden presidency before and after he got elected. Chuck Todd specifically said he would not allow climate change deniers on the show oh here's where i have the specifics about it but there are literally hundreds if not thousands of climate scientists who specifically push back against these ideas and again the questions are is it warming is it warm? if it is warming is it due to man's activities it may be warming but not to the extent claimed is it warming due to the sun events related to the sun or events outside the control of people there are a lot of different questions related to it then there's an identical situation with CRT and other ideas. But 40% of Americans do not feel free to speak their minds. This is up dramatically from what it used to be. And you have big tech who are at the forefront of trying to silence people with the wrong ideas. So you have Facebook suspensions. There were things like related to the election, of course, related to gender, misgendering somebody. Can't even discuss it. There were even people who just <laughs> put up FBI statistics and those were banned because they were used in a particular way. There's this meme that I actually recently. Recently, saw It was about COVID mandates in New York that talked about how they would disproportionately hurt black New Yorkers because disproportionately black people in New York are not getting COVID vaccines. So it was saying how this is systemically racist using the exact same logic people in that area use to say something else is systemically racist. And these were banned by Twitter. You couldn't say that. You couldn't put up these memes that were saying that. But Big Tech gave 98% to Democrats over the last election cycle, and Biden hired 14 current and former execs from Big Tech to be part of his transition team and his administration. Then you have that letter from, I think it was from lawmakers, that called for the deplatforming of Fox and OANN, saying that they were purveyors of misinformation and therefore should not be platformed with these cable channels. Censorship at its finest. And of course, another thing, uh, I don't know if it was talked about in this book, I think the book might have been written before this happened, but the press secretary of the United States (laughs) at the White House explicitly said that the White House was working with Facebook to censor particular people on their platform. So this is a de facto breaching of the First Amendment because it's the government telling a company that they need to censor somebody. And everybody should have been freaking out about that. That's absolutely insane. So then we get to the finale here where we get some action-oriented prose, which is much appreciated. The author believes that we must become personally involved, we must teach great things about the country, and we must be against Marxism. And he quotes Thomas Paine, These are the times that try men's souls, the summer soldier, and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. This was apparently read uh, at the instruction of Washington before a big battle. The author suggests boycott, divestments, and sanctions, doing everything that you can to resist what's going on here so that when it comes to companies, you withdraw support, you divest from banks to engage in this stuff. And FOIA requests, a big, big tool in this arsenal, is using FOIA requests to get the information directly from the government. And in education, get involved, attend, every kind of meeting related to it that you can, and use FOIA requests for the curriculum. Find out the curriculum that's being taught to the children and to your high schoolers. Private attorneys, again, CRT. This is something that I might be wading into relatively soon here. More competition in education, more school choice. I mean, we all need to be advocating that. The big thing when it comes to so many of these problems is that you don't have the same kind of freedom and competition in these areas when it comes to medicine, when it comes to education. You have so much infiltration by the government that it nullifies the competition incentive to make people do better in this and you add on top of that unions which neuter the need to perform better than <laughs> than other people to be able to advance in many many cases and so you end up with something like education which has just been a, a propaganda arm rather than doing something that is beneficial to the people who are going there so you need more competition you need schools to compete for students and try to do the best that they can to equip students for the future When it comes to corporations, go to shareholder meetings, to lobby legislators to investigate any companies that do business with China, and eliminate tax exempt status for environmental groups. And there's this other idea about police being able to file civil suits against people who assault them or do other things. To hurt them in various ways. And I, there are obvious concerns on the other side of that with a bunch of frivolous lawsuits that now if police were, if police were able to sue civilly against people who attack them, then it would stand a reason that the, the people would be able to try to sue the police individually and civilly for force that was used against them. So uh, there would at least be more calls for that. So you'd have to be careful with how that worked. But if police could do that, I think that, that could be really helpful. So anyway, that's, that's the book. That's uh, American Marxism, Mark Levin. So this is one of those that could have just been another conservative book. We've read a few of them now. We've got Speechless was the most recent one that we read. And then I know Ben Shapiro just had another book come out, so it could have just been another one of those. But I see where Levin gets his celebrity. He's uh, more philosophical. He's got a deep well of knowledge. And a well-structured understanding in his approach to CRT, in the way that he goes to the theorists and he lays them out and their ideas out neatly. His references run the gamut. He's got Rousseau, he's got Rand, he's got Payne, he's got Soul, and all the CRT theorists who shouldn't be mentioned anywhere near any of those people. But he seems very grounded in his understanding and his calls to action. There's a lot of wisdom kind of built into the way that he put all this stuff together. Then his uh, discussions of critical theory and climate and the Latino-Latina version of critical theory. I mean, those things were new to me, so much appreciated. And I appreciate him adding The True Believer to my list. So I can appreciate I think it was just a, a well-put-together book, and it had some chunky discussions about a lot of these important topics. And I think it was one political book that you could read a couple of times, and you could really get some stuff out of it. So anyway, moving to the big picture, though the world has seen this threat before in history budding civilizations have faced groups of people who claimed certainty on all questions and were willing to use violence to enforce it the difference now is the technology available So in the 19th century, the amount of violence and destruction that could be wrought worldwide was limited really by ambulation. It was how far and how fast could people walk. That's what limited, prior to the 19th century and within the 19th century, that's what limited how much damage could be done. And even in the 21st century, when it finally breaks out, it was limited by the kinds of avenues of manipulation that totalitarians had and take tracks, you know, maybe a propeller on a plane, those kinds of things still limited the kinds of destruction that you could do but when it came to manipulation the way that you could use propaganda it might be limited to dropping leaflets in places you know there would be whole pockets whole chunks the vast majority of the world's population who wouldn't be impacted by your propaganda you might have radio or tv or something like that but still you didn't have it being pumped in the way that it is today now it's scarcely limited by anything. Manipulation and the issuance and propagation of propaganda are not just the vocation of power-hungry politicians anymore. It's trillion-dollar companies who have a financial interest in this business. Even the ugliest pre-tech monsters were boxed in. I mean, imagine Genghis Khan today with a surveillance state and attack drones. So we are in an unprecedented situation because we have never seen the implements of technology, the way that we have gone so far beyond what our brains can do now, and can't even begin to realize how these tools can be used to our detriment. Especially things like just means of manipulation, of ways to use propaganda to get people to think in certain ways. The dissemination and forced adherence ideology, these things are completely new, and we don't know how it's going to unravel. Anyway, that's American Marxism, and I will definitely do a discussion on this one, because there's plenty to talk about. But otherwise, uh, that'll be when we choose the next book, and I will see you on the next one. All right, bye.